Chapter thirty one, part one of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter thirty one. Mr. Pinch is discharged of a duty which he never owed to anybody and Mr. Pecksniff discharges a duty which he owes to society. Part One. The closing words of the last chapter lead naturally to the commencement of this, its successor, for it has to do with the church. With the church, so often mentioned heretofore, in which Tom Pinch played the organ for nothing. One sultry afternoon, about a week after Miss Charity's departure for London, Mr. Pecksniff, being out walking by himself, took it into his head to stray into the churchyard. As he was lingering among the tombstones, endeavouring to extract an available sentiment or two from the epitaphs, for he never lost an opportunity of making up a few moral crackers to be let off as occasion served, Tom Pinch began to practice. Tom could run down to the church and do so whenever he had time to spare, for it was a simple little organ, provided with wind by the action of the musician's feet and he was independent even of a bellows-blower. Though if Tom had wanted one at any time, there was not a man or boy in all the village in the weight of the turnpike, Tolman included, but would have blown away for him till he was black in the face. Mr. Pecksniff had no objection to music, not the least. He was tolerant of everything, he often said so. He considered it a vagabond kind of trifling, in general, just suited to Tom's capacity but in regard to Tom's performance upon this same organ, he was remarkably lenient, singularly amiable, for when Tom played it on Sundays, Mr. Pecksniff, in his unbounded sympathy, felt as if he played it himself, and were a benefactor to the congregation. So whenever it was impossible to devise any other means of taking the value of Tom's wages out of him, Mr. Pecksniff gave him leave to cultivate this instrument, for which mark of his consideration Tom was very grateful." The afternoon was remarkably warm, and Mr. Pecksniff had been strolling a long way. He had not what may be called a fine ear for music, but he knew when it had a tranquilizing influence on his soul, and that was the case now, for it sounded to him like a melodious snore. He approached the church, and looking through the diamond lattice of a window near the porch, saw Tom, with the curtains in the loft drawn back, playing away with great expression and tenderness. The church had an inviting air of coolness. The old oak roof supported by cross-beams, the hoary walls, the marble tablets, and the cracked stone pavement were refreshing to look at. There were leaves of ivy tapping gently at the opposite windows, and the sun poured in through only one, leaving the body of the church in tempting shade. But the most tempting spot of all was one red-curtained and soft-cushioned pew, wherein the official dignitaries of the place— of whom Mr. Pecksniff was the head and chief, enshrined themselves on Sundays. Mr. Pecksniff's seat was in the corner, a remarkably comfortable corner, where his very large prayer-book was at that minute making the most of its quarto self upon the desk. He determined to go in and rest. He entered very softly, in part because it was a church, in part because his tread was always soft, in part because Tom played a solemn tune, in part because he thought he would surprise him when he stopped. 
Unbolting the door of the high pew of state, he glided in and shut it after him. Then, sitting in his usual place and stretching out his legs upon the hassocks, he composed himself to listen to the music. It is an unaccountable circumstance that he should have felt drowsy there, where the force of association might surely have been enough to keep him wide awake. But he did. He had not been in the snug little corner five minutes before he began to nod. He had not recovered himself one minute before he began to nod again. In the very act of opening his eyes indolently, he nodded again. In the very act of shutting them, he nodded again. So he fell out of one nod into another, until at last he ceased to nod at all, and was as fast as the church itself. He had a consciousness of the organ long after he fell asleep, though as to its being an organ he had no more idea of that than he had of its being a bull. After a while he began to have at intervals the same dreamy impressions of voices, and awakening to an indolent curiosity upon the subject, opened his eyes. He was so indolent that after glancing at the hassocks and the pew, he was already halfway off to sleep again when it occurred to him that there really were voices in the church, low voices talking earnestly hard by while the echoes seemed to mutter responses. He roused himself and listened. Before he had listened half a dozen seconds, he became as broad awake as ever he had been in all his life. With eyes and ears and mouth wide open, he moved himself a very little with the utmost caution, and gathering the curtain in his hand, peeped out. Tom Pinch and Mary. Of course. He had recognized their voices, and already knew the topic they discussed. Looking like the small end of a guillotined man, with his chin on a level with the top of the pew, so that he might duck down immediately in case of either of them turning round, he listened. Listened with such concentrated eagerness that his very hair and shirt-collar stood bristling up to help him. "'No,' cried Tom, "'no letters have ever reached me except that one from New York. But don't be uneasy on that account.' for it's very likely they have gone away to some far-off place where the posts are neither regular nor frequent. He said in that very letter that it might be so, even in that city to which they thought of travelling. Eden, you know. It is a great weight upon my mind, said Mary. Oh, but you mustn't let it be, said Tom. There's a true saying that nothing travels so fast as ill news, and if the slightest harm had happened to Martin you may be sure you would have heard of it long ago. "'I have often wished to say this to you,' Tom continued, with an embarrassment that became him very well. "'But you have never given me an opportunity.' "'I have sometimes been almost afraid,' said Mary, "'that you might suppose I hesitated to confide in you, Mr. Pinch.' "'No,' Tom stammered. "'I—I I am not aware that I ever supposed that. "'I am sure that if I have, I have checked the thought directly as an injustice to you.' "'I feel the delicacy of your situation in having to confide in me at all,' said Tom. "'But I would risk my life to save you from one day's uneasiness. "'Indeed I would.' "'Poor Tom. "'I have dreaded sometimes,' Tom continued, "'that I might have displeased you by—by by having the boldness to try and anticipate your wishes now and then. "'At other times I have fancied that your kindness prompted you to keep aloof from me.' "'Indeed?' "'It was very foolish, very presumptuous, and ridiculous to think so,' Tom pursued. "'But I feared you might suppose it possible that I—I I should admire you too much for my own peace, and so denied yourself the slight assistance you would otherwise have accepted from me.' "'If such an idea has ever presented itself to you,' faltered Tom, 
Pray dismiss it. I am easily made happy, and I shall live contented here long after you and Martin have forgotten me. I am a poor, shy, awkward creature, not at all a man of the world, and you should think no more of me, bless you, than if I were an old friar. If friars bear such hearts as thine, Tom, let friars multiply, though they have no such rule in all their stern arithmetic. Dear Mr. Pinch, said Mary, giving him her hand, I cannot tell you how your kindness moves me. I have never wronged you by the lightest doubt, and have never for an instant ceased to feel that you were all, much more than all, that Martin found you. Without the silent care and friendship I have experienced from you, my life here would have been unhappy. But you have been a good angel to me, filling me with gratitude of heart, hope, and courage. I am as little like an angel, I am afraid, replied Tom, shaking his head, as any stone cherubim among the gravestones, and I don't think there are many real angels of that pattern. But I should like to know, if you will tell me, why you have been so very silent about Martin. Because I have been afraid, said Mary, of injuring you. Of injuring me, cried Tom, of doing you an injury with your employer. The gentleman in question dived. "'With Pecksniff?' rejoined Tom, with cheerful confidence. "'Oh, dear, he'd never think of us. He's the best of men. The more at ease you were, the happier he would be. Oh, dear, you needn't be afraid of Pecksniff. He is not a spy.' Many a man in Mr. Pecksniff's place, if he could have dived through the floor of the Pew of State and come out at Calcutta, or any inhabited region on the other side of the earth, would have done it instantly. Mr. Pecksniff sat down upon a hassock, and listening more attentively than ever, smiled. Mary seemed to have expressed some dissent in the meanwhile, for Tom went on to say, with honest energy, "'Well, I don't know how it is, but it always happens, whenever I express myself in this way to anybody almost, that I find they won't do justice to Pecksniff. It is one of the most extraordinary circumstances that ever came within my knowledge, but it is so. There's John Westlock, who used to be a pupil here, one of the best-hearted young men in the world, in all other matters. I really believe John would have Pecksniff flogged at the cart's tail if he could. And John is not a solitary case, for every pupil we have had in my time has gone away with the same inveterate hatred of him. There was Mark Tapley, too, quite in another station of life, said Tom. The mockery he used to make of Pecksniff when he was at the Dragon was shocking. Martin, too. Martin was worse than any of them. "'But I forgot. He prepared you to dislike Pecksniff, of course. "'So you came with a prejudice, you know, Miss Graham, and are not a fair witness.' "'Tom triumphed very much in this discovery, and rubbed his hands with great satisfaction. "'Mr. Pinch,' said Mary, "'you mistake him.' "'No, no,' cried Tom, "'you mistake him. "'But,' he added with a rapid change in his tone, "'what is the matter? "'Miss Graham, what is the matter?' Mr. Pecksniff brought up to the top of the pew by slow degrees his hair, his forehead, his eyebrow, his eye. She was sitting on a bench beside the door with her hands before her face, and Tom was bending over her. "'What is the matter?' cried Tom. "'Have I said anything to hurt you? Has anyone said anything to hurt you? Don't cry, pray, tell me what it is. I cannot bear to see you so distressed. Mercy on us! I never was so surprised and grieved in all my life.' Mr. Pecksniff kept his eye in the same place. He could have moved it now for nothing short of a gimlet or a red-hot wire. "'I wouldn't have told you, Mr. Pinch,' said Mary, "'if I could have helped it. 
but your delusion is so absorbing, and it is so necessary that we should be upon our guard, that you should not be compromised, and to that end that you should know by whom I am beset, that no alternative is left me. I came here purposely to tell you, but I think I should have wanted courage if you had not chanced to lead me so directly to the object of my coming. Tom gazed at her steadfastly, and seemed to say, "'What else?' but he said not a word. "'That person whom you think the best of men,' said Mary, looking up and speaking with a quivering lip and flashing eye. "'Lord, bless me!' muttered Tom, staggering back. "'Wait a moment. That person whom I think the best of men? You mean Pecksniff, of course. Yes, I see you mean Pecksniff. Good gracious me, don't speak without authority. What has he done? If he is not the best of men, what is he?' the worst, the falsest, craftiest, meanest, cruelest, most sordid, most shameless, said the trembling girl, trembling with her indignation. Tom sat down on a seat and clasped his hands. What is he? said Mary, who, receiving me in his house as his guest, his unwilling guest, knowing my history and how defenceless and alone I am, presumes before his daughters to affront me so, that if I had a brother but a child who saw it, he would instinctively have helped me. "'He is a scoundrel!' exclaimed Tom. "'Whoever he may be, he is a scoundrel!' Mr. Pecksniff dived again. "'What is he?' said Mary, who, when my only friend, a dear and kind one, too, was in full health of mind, humbled himself before him, but was spurned away, for he knew him then like a dog. Who, in his forgiving spirit, now that that friend is sunk into a failing state, can crawl about him again and use the influence he basely gains for every base and wicked purpose, and not for one, not one, that's true or good? "'I say he is a scoundrel,' answered Tom." "'But what is he? Oh, Mr. Pinch, what is he? "'Who, thinking he could compass these designs the better if I were his wife, "'assails me with the coward's argument that if I marry him, "'Martin, on whom I have brought so much misfortune, "'shall be restored to something of his former hopes, "'and if I do not, shall be plunged in deeper ruin. "'What is he who makes my very constancy to one I love with all my heart "'a torture to myself and wrong to him?' who makes me do what I will, the instrument to hurt a head I would heap blessings on? What is he, who, winding all these cruel snares about me, explains their purpose to me with a smooth tongue and a smiling face in the broad light of day, dragging me on the while in his embrace, and holding to his lips a hand, pursued the agitated girl, extending it, which I would have struck off, if with it I could lose the shame and degradation of his touch? "'I say!' cried Tom, in great excitement. "'He is a scoundrel and a villain. I don't care who he is. I say he is a double-dyed and most intolerable villain.' Covering her face with her hands again, as if the passion which had sustained her through these disclosures lost itself in an overwhelming sense of shame and grief, she abandoned herself to tears. Any sight of distress was sure to move the tenderness of Tom, but this especially— Tears and sobs from her were arrows in his heart. He tried to comfort her, sat down beside her, expended all his store of homely eloquence, and spoke in words of praise and hope of Martin. Ay, though he loved her from his soul with such a self-denying love as woman seldom wins, he spoke from first to last of Martin. Not the wealth of the rich Indies would have tempted Tom to shirk one mention of her lover's name. When she was more composed, she impressed upon Tom that this man she had described was Pecksniff in his real colours, 
and word by word and phrase by phrase, as well as she remembered it, related what had passed between them in the wood, which was no doubt a source of high gratification to that gentleman himself, who, in his desire to see and his dread of being seen, was constantly diving down into the state pew and coming up again like the intelligent householder in Punch's show who avoids being knocked on the head with a cudgel. When she had concluded her account, and had besought Tom to be very distant and unconscious in his manner towards her after this explanation, and had thanked him very much, they parted on the alarm of footsteps in the burial-ground, and Tom was left alone in the church again. And now the full agitation and misery of the disclosure came rushing upon Tom indeed. The star of his whole life from boyhood had become, in a moment, putrid vapour. It was not that Pecksniff, Tom's Pecksniff, had ceased to exist, but that he never had existed. In his death Tom would have had the comfort of remembering what he used to be, but in this discovery he had the anguish of recollecting what he never was. For as Tom's blindness in this matter had been total and not partial, so was his restored sight. His Pecksniff could never have worked the wickedness of which he had just now heard, but any other Pecksniff could— and the Pecksniff who could do that could do anything, and no doubt had been doing anything and everything except the right thing all through his career. From the lofty height on which poor Tom had placed his idol, it was tumbled down headlong, and not all the king's horses nor all the king's men could have set Mr. Pecksniff up again. Legions of titans couldn't have got him out of the mud and serve him right. But it was not he who suffered, it was Tom. His compass was broken, his chart destroyed, his chronometer had stopped, his masts were gone by the board, his anchor was adrift, ten thousand leagues away. Mr. Pecksniff watched him with a lively interest, for he divined the purpose of Tom's ruminations, and was curious to see how he conducted himself. For some time Tom wandered up and down the aisle like a man demented, stopping occasionally to lean against a pew and think it over. Then he stood staring at a blank old monument, bordered tastefully with skulls and crossbones, as if it were the finest work of art he had ever seen, although at other times he held it in unspeakable contempt. Then he sat down, then walked to and fro again, then went wandering up into the organ-loft and touched the keys. But their minstrelsy was changed, their music gone, and sounding one long melancholy chord, Tom drooped his head upon his hands and gave it up as hopeless. "'I wouldn't have cared,' said Tom Pinch, rising from his stool and looking down into the church as if he had been the clergyman. "'I wouldn't have cared for anything he might have done to me, for I have tried his patience often and have lived upon his sufferance and have never been the help to him that others could have been. "'I wouldn't have minded, Pecksniff,' Tom continued, little thinking who heard him, "'if you had done me any wrong. I could have found plenty of excuses for that, and though you might have hurt me, could have still gone on respecting you.' "'But why did you ever fall so low as this in my esteem? "'Oh, Pecksniff, Pecksniff, there is nothing I would not have given "'to have had you deserve my old opinion of you. Nothing.' Mr. Pecksniff sat upon the hassock, pulling up his shirt-collar, while Tom, touched to the quick, delivered this apostrophe. After a pause he heard Tom coming down the stairs, jingling the church-keys, and bringing his eye to the top of the pew again, saw him go slowly out and lock the door. Mr. Pecksniff durst not issue from his place of concealment, for through the windows of the church he saw Tom passing on among the graves, 
and sometimes stopping at a stone, and leaning there as if he were a mourner who had lost a friend. Even when he had left the churchyard, Mr. Pecksniff still remained shut up, not being at all secure, but that in his restless state of mind Tom might come wandering back. At length he issued forth, and walked with a pleasant countenance into the vestry, where he knew there was a window near the ground by which he could release himself by merely stepping out. He was in a curious frame of mind, Mr. Pecksniff, being in no hurry to go, but rather inclining to a dilatory trifling with the time which prompted him to open the vestry cupboard and look at himself in the parson's little glass that hung within the door. Seeing that his hair was rumpled, he took the liberty of borrowing the canonical brush and arranging it. He also took the liberty of opening another cupboard, but he shut it up again quickly, being rather startled by the sight of a black and a white surplice dangling against the wall, which had very much the appearance of two curates who had committed suicide by hanging themselves. Remembering that he had seen in the first cupboard a port wine-bottle and some biscuits, he peeped into it again, and helped himself with much deliberation, cogitating all the time, though, in a very deep and weighty manner, as if his thoughts were otherwise employed. He soon made up his mind, if it had ever been in doubt, and putting back the bottle and biscuits, opened the casement. He got out into the churchyard without any difficulty, shut the window after him, and walked straight home. "'Is Mr. Pinch indoors?' asked Mr. Pecksniff of his serving-maid. "'Just come in, sir.' "'Just come in, eh?' repeated Mr. Pecksniff cheerfully. "'And gone upstairs, I suppose?' "'Yes, sir, gone upstairs. Shall I call him, sir?' "'No,' said Mr. Pecksniff. "'No, you needn't call him, Jane. Thank you, Jane. How are your relations, Jane?' "'Pretty well. I thank you, sir.' "'I am glad to hear it. Let them know I asked about them, Jane.' "'Is Mr. Chuzzlewit in the way, Jane?' "'Yes, sir. He's in the parlour reading.' "'He's in the parlour reading, is he, Jane?' said Mr. Pecksniff. "'Very well. Then I think I'll go and see him, Jane.' Never had Mr. Pecksniff been beheld in a more pleasant humour. End of chapter 31, part 1